Hey, okay, I had to jump in this week to say this. Happy birthday to Cultivating Place. We are five years old this month. With more than 300 episodes in conversations with gardeners around the globe growing this world better, I am so gratified to be here with you. I wanted to share some fun numbers, too. I first began looking at these things back in 2018. That year, the Cultivating Place podcast was downloaded 155,000 times. In 2019, episodes were downloaded 215,000 times. In 2020, well, this is like that rule in the garden. The first year your plants sleep, the second they creep, and the third they leap. In 2020, the Cultivating Place podcast was downloaded 381,000 times. This is a testament to the power of the gardeners we hear from, the power of gardens in general. I can't think of a community I would rather be growing with. Thank you for the great gift of your listening time. Gardens and gardeners make a difference in our world. Here's to five more years. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In 2015, Melanie Falick, a maker, a writer, a creative, left her 15-year corporate career in the publishing world without a completely clear sense of what she would or wanted to do next. Her intuition told her that whatever it was, it would involve engagement with the handwork, knitting, sewing, time in the garden, that she loved, but that she had moved away from personal direct contact with in her career. In the course of making many things following this retirement of sorts, it was the crafting of a simple folded paper box, a box of incredibly basic utility, that Melanie had an epiphany that in a circuitous way, all of her creative making was in fact her trying to connect to her own survival and that that impulse was tied inextricably to her own sense of self. Melanie and I actually chatted in February, before the shutdown, which seems prescient somehow in hindsight, and I think speaks to the fact that this growing global dissatisfaction with what we have been told success is, has been in the making for a very long time. Enjoy this conversation about her newest book, Making a Life, Working by Hand and Discovering the Life You Are Meant to Live, in which Melanie explores how others have been manifesting this impulse and leading lives of great connection and meaning long before COVID-19, and how they might be role models for any one of us in making our own lives as we move forward. Hi, it's good to be here. Give us a little bit of context of why you wrote this sentence, and I want to spend more time in the garden. And this is not a trick question. This is me leading up to how you came to find yourself in a place where you wanted to write a book about people who make their lives by doing valuable, artistic, useful, beautiful things with their hands. Okay. So 
Um, in the introduction to the book, I was writing about what was going on in my life um, before I started working on the book. And basically for 12 years, um, I worked at Abrams Books, which is a New York City publisher. I didn't actually work there. I worked from home and went into the city one day a week. And I um, published books about craft and creative living. And I started there um, in, I guess it was 2003. And, and it really was a dream job. And I felt very fortunate to have it. And I worked with a lot of um, different extraordinary people over those years. But in the last few years, I started to realize um, that I wasn't I wasn't feeling really that happy or satisfied with um, with where I was. I started to feel like I I felt like I had my hands tied behind my back. I was spending so much time working on other people's books. I was spending a lot of time dealing with profit and loss statements. I was dealing with you know the rise of social media and um, what that the effect that had on whose books we published and how we published them is dealing with kind of a whole change in, in the book world. And I felt like the emphasis where I was, was on just selling more books as opposed to the, the true quality of the books and the meaning of the books. Um, and I just realized that I was like in my head all the time. And it was, I was sort of agitated in my head and so um, after a couple of years of really thinking deeply about that, I decided to leave. And it was a big decision. I was I had spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how I was going to make a living and what about my retirement plan and not getting vacation pay. And um, I was able to leave that job most importantly, because my husband got a job that had health insurance. And so that gave me the freedom to mm -hmm. really be able to disconnect from it. And, um, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I just felt like I had to take some time away from all the chatter in my mind and all the sort of stress that I was used to living with on a daily basis, um, in my work. And, I had a couple of things. I knew I wanted to take a graphic design class and I knew I wanted to work in the garden. And I remember on the, my very first morning after my last day, after I had sort of, I did have an office in New York city and an office in my home. And I had officially moved out of my office in New York city and finished and gone home. And the next morning I remember, um, I think it was May and going outside and, and, I think, I, I don't know if I was weeding. It seems like if there might not have been that many weeds then, but I went outside and I was doing something to the garden and the ground. And I just thought, oh my gosh, like I can do this. Like I get to choose, like anything is possible. And so at that moment, I really felt like rather than, you know, all the concerns about what if this and what if that, and um, it was more like, I can do anything. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So, and there is, you know, mm, there is just such a, uh, an empowering self-sufficiency, if not, you know, fully self-sufficient reality. There is this baseline understanding of capability and self-sufficiency in putting yourself to work 
with your garden. Yeah. It's it's impressive. And and really that is at the heart of all of the endeavors that you have chronicled in the book. But before we get to the book, take us back a little bit and and you know, where were you born and raised and who were the people and places and makers or or plants people or plants that grew you into a person that would spend dedicate their life to the discussion of and centering of craft in in all its forms yeah yeah so I grew up in Mattawa New Jersey I you know I grew up in a house where my father gardened quite extensively or I guess he thought wasn't in the house that was on the property we had a fairly big yard and he did a lot of gardening a lot of landscaping and I have this vague recollection of, you know, this pile in the backyard. And he has since told me that, you know, in the suburbs of New Jersey in those years, we were probably the only people that had a compost pile. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So he, you know, it was very important to him to be working with his hands. And he taught architecture and engineering um, as his profession, but at home, he and he actually had a landscaping business for a while too, as well. But when when he was at home, you know, he he made things, he fixed things. Um, probably in part because it was more affordable at that time to do it himself. But more so, or or if not more so, it at least equally, it, he wanted to do it. Um, so I remember him like making paneling, like special paneling. Like, I don't know what he did with the wood, but he didn't like buy panels and nail them up. He like made the panels. And I mean, I obviously remember him doing all the yard work. I remember him painting. I remember him doing pottery. And he also would take my brother and me to see makers, you know, just, and he would take us and, and show us like high quality materials and good workmanship. And that was really just it wasn't considered something special, you know, I mean, it was special that people took great care with their work or had a lot of talent or used natural materials that he pointed that out, but it didn't feel special because we were just kids. And, you know, that's what my father was telling me about. Um, at the same time, my mom was when I was really young. I mean, I remember up till I was at least in first or second grade, she would, make a lot of my clothes. And, um, she also repaired and mended or mended and, and made clothes for other people in our community. And I, again, I think she did some of that work, certainly for people in the community for money. But I, I remember that she made my clothes. It seemed with pleasure, you know, when I think back Mm -hmm. about it, I don't remember her complaining about it. I remember that, she liked it and it was exciting. And I, I've talked to other people. I mean, to this day, like the memory of going to the fabric store with your mom and how those drawers, when you pulled the drawers mm. open, I don't know if you've done it. And oh, then, yeah. like they would make a certain sound and then you would like, like first you would look through the book, like for Butterick or Vogue or whatever, and you would pick what you want and then you'd find the number and they'd all be like jammed into the drawer. <laughs> <laughs> And when I was working at Abrams, I actually had the opportunity to visit like the Joann's corporate office. And I talked to them about like the drawers and how they had tried to um, stop using them. 
I, I don't know if they've done it since then, but there was a lot of pushback. People wanted the drawers with the yes. pattern stuffed in them. Yeah. But in any case, my mom um, ultimately went back to school and then became a psychology and a history teacher and then a psychotherapist. So she wasn't making clothes, clothing as much, but she never stopped sewing. And she, you know, I remember her knitting things for me and crocheting and it, but it wasn't, it wasn't like all the time. And it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of conversation about this being important. It was just what you did. Right. Right. It was just a normal part of everyday life. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I remember one Thanksgiving, one of my aunts, like she crocheted like these hats. It was, we called them alley caps because in love story, Allie McGraw wore this Mm. crocheted hat. And I think it was in love story. And so she made my cousins and me all these crocheted hats and my grandmother knit stuff for me. And, um, I remember they lived in New York city, but I remember like, I think one of my aunts worked for a florist and then my grandmother was always like, you know, like growing things from seeds that she took, you know, she got from fruit. Like it was just, even though they weren't, um, in a place where they could have a garden, um, there were lots of plants around. And, mm-hmm. um, but as I said, it was, I, I never thought it was special. And I didn't realize that other people didn't grow up in those circumstances. So you grow up, this is part of your everyday ordinary mm-hmm. life, and it is exquisitely beautiful in being just that. And you go on to study what that leads you then into the publishing world, merging your love of craft Mm -hmm. and writing, editing together. The most influential thing that happened to me in my college education was that I studied abroad. I first went to France for a semester, and then I did something called the International Honors Program, um, which still exists today. And I went to Kenya, Egypt, and Israel. So our, we traveled with our professors and, um, and had professors in those countries as well and lived with families in those countries. And I remember when I was in France, um, a lot of the girls knit and there were also some girls from Scandinavia. And so I decided to knit something and, you know, those, in those days they didn't really use patterns. I think, I think my French friend, like, just had like a paper bag that <laughs> she kind of used to figure out the the shape that the sweater would be. And I would study my French vocabulary um, where I'd like knit a row and say a word in French and say it in English for the whole row and then change the next <laughs> word. Um, but I didn't finish. I think I was going to make a sweater. And then when I got home, my mom finished it. It became a vest. It didn't have sleeves because I think I ran out of yarn or something. But um but then when I went to on this program in Kenya, Egypt, and Israel, I wasn't, I remember seeing weavers there. I don't remember like connecting to the fact like, oh, I could be a weaver or anything like that. I mean, I remember seeing women in Kenya, like making baskets sitting on the ground in Nairobi at the market. And like, I remember noticing it, but I don't remember ever feeling like, oh, I could do that. But the time that I spent in Kenya, Egypt, and Israel was so influential and France to a certain extent, but it was really like becoming observant and learning that normal is relative Mm. and that everything that I grew up thinking was the way like normal or the way things are was 
just the way things were like in my family or in my town or in mm-hmm. my country. Um, and, uh, and it, we really, I really spent a lot of time and we were studying cultural anthropology and it was really about how people represent themselves to the world and, and how their stories and their history, um, what, what you learn from how they live about their stories and their history. So then when I came back to the United States and, um, finished college, I, I worked in international relations just for a year in Washington, DC. And then I ended up moving to New York and, um, working for Chocolatier magazine. It was during that time that I started to knit again. What I really was most interested in as I became a knitter and as I kind of dabbled in learning about the history of quilts, but not quilting, not doing quilting myself was women and women's Mm -hmm. stories and how you could, um, learn about a culture by way of, I, I, in this case it was their knitting, but really by way of handwork Mm -hmm. in general. So I really, I started traveling to places like the Shetland Islands in Scotland and, um, looking at the knitting traditions that they had there and the type of sheep they had there and the type of yarn they had there and sort of saying like, what does that tell me about their history? And what does it tell me about, for the most part, women's lives? And it really was for me a way of like honoring women and women's stories, many of which are not, um, given prominence in the history books that, that I read Mm -hmm. growing up. (laughs) it seemed like the history books were really so much more about the history of conquering and fighting and Mm -hmm. business. So I decided that I wanted to merge um, my new career in publishing with my passion for handwork and in particular knitting. And pretty early on, I had the idea of writing a book about the knitting community and the people who raised animals and plants for fiber in the United States, because at that time, and this was the early nineties, um, knitting didn't really get a lot of positive PR. (laughs) There was this, to me, strange assumption that young people didn't knit, that knitting wasn't interesting. Um, and yet that was completely counter to my experience, because as soon as I started knitting in my adult life, I met the most extraordinary people and I was introduced to the most beautiful yarns. And then I became, I was sort of following those strands and then finding people who raised certain kinds of sheep or certain kind of goats or, um, you know, naturally colored cotton. And it was mostly women. It was mostly extraordinary women who I felt had so much knowledge that I wanted to learn from them. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up writing a book called Knitting in America. And that book included profiles of these people in beautiful photography, as well as projects from the people in the book who actually were knitwear designers. And that book got a lot of attention. Uh, The one thing that bothered me then and, and still happens to this day is that 
people, um, especially when I was interviewed by the media and stuff, they would always say, or publicists who wanted to write about what I was doing would say, um, it's not your grandma's knitting. There was this, um, (laughs) this ageism and certain degree of, I don't know, sexism about it. Like, and I, I always want to point this out when, yeah, it's absolutely my grandmother's knitting. Mm -hmm. You know, that's part of my point that, um, this idea that handwork, um, isn't special, that it shouldn't be honored, um, I think goes with that statement. It's not your grandmother's knitting as if somehow what we're doing today is better. Right. The idea that knitting or handwork in general is somehow not a valuable or important activity is counter, completely counter to what I believe, because I believe that working with our hands is our evolutionary birthright and a really important part of who we are as human beings. So that kind of, if I do sort of like a big jump from writing knitting in America to then I wrote a book called kids knitting. And then I was the editor of a knitting magazine. And then I got my job at Abrams where I was able to work with authors on knitting books, as well as books on a lot of different kinds of handwork and, and on creative living more generally. Um, and that's when, you know, that was really wonderful, but then like a plumber with leaky pipes, I got to the point where, you know, I was spending my time at my desk, you know, typing on my computer (laughs) and I, I said in the beginning, when we started to talk, I felt like my hands were tied behind my back. And it wasn't only that, you know, we were doing a book about quilting or sewing or um, some other stamping or whatever, and that I wanted to learn to do what those books were about, or I wanted to have the experience of, of practicing those techniques. I really felt that I didn't even, I didn't have time to like, fix a chair, let alone did I know how to fix a a chair that had something broken about it that shouldn't be that hard to fix. You know, that I, I was, I did have a garden, but I felt like I, you know, I was, you know, I was kind of stressed out when I was picking the weeds because I didn't feel like I had enough time to pick them um, well. And then I was kind of hard on myself because you know, my garden didn't look good or I let, you know, a plant die. And I realized that what I wanted more than anything was to be like reconnected to my hands and to my survival and to the earth. And that, um, I didn't know how that was going to translate into, you know, a new career, (laughs) but that, I needed to think about the life that I was making. I needed to make a good life while at the same time making a living. And I felt like things had gotten a little cockeyed and I had really didn't, you know, I I needed to kind of reassess what I needed in terms of money, what I needed in terms of a title and what I needed in terms of how I literally spent each day. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Writer, maker, knitter, and gardener Melanie Felix's newest book, Making a Life, 
working by hand and discovering the life you are meant to live is a fascinating spotlight between what we do with our hands and the quality of our lives. We'll be right back with more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. I wanted to share with you all that I will be the inaugural speaker for the Southern California Horticultural Society's annual Ruth Boron Lecture Series on Thursday, February 11th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific. I believe it will be recorded, so for those of you who might want to register and watch later on different time zones, that will work too. It will be my first time talking about the integration of the newest book, Under Western Skies, due to be published in late April or early May, with my work here on the podcast and the work of The Earth in Her Hands. For me, it is a really nice coming together and interweaving of all that I believe in, how our plants and our places grow us as people if we listen to them. You can register for the talk at SoCalHort.org. That's S-O-C-A-L-H-O-R-T.org. It's amazing to me that Cultivating Place is five years old and that more than 300 conversations have been hosted with this ethos at their center. Gardens and gardening are powerful, intersectional agents and spaces of positive, possible change. It is great to feel and see and know this very ethos is growing here, too, on Cultivating Place. You can always keep up to date on events I'm taking part in or horticultural happenings on the website, cultivatingplace.com forward slash events. And I included links to all my upcoming virtual events in January's A View From Here newsletter, which went out this past Sunday, the 31st. I generally try to give you a heads up on such things over on my Instagram account, where more than 12,000 of you are now in conversation with me about all things Cultivating Place. If you're not with me there, pop in and follow along. Say hi. It's definitely the platform on which I'm most active, with almost daily views on places, plants, and plants people. And who doesn't need a daily boost of green life? There's a very specific gratification we derive from working with our hands. Gardening, cooking, sewing, building. In this moment where our convenient society is being asked to reevaluate and restructure, the handmade has come back into sharp focus. As we come back to the conversation, writer and maker Melanie Falick describes her process for charting the paths of people who have centered their lives around the handmade. What comes to mind is a trip I took early on in my research to Oaxaca, Mexico, and um, spending just a little bit of time with um, a group of women, mostly, I think, I'm they were women in the same family. It was sisters and an aunt, and they make their living doing pottery. And they make pottery the way people in their family have been making that, making pottery for countless generations using clay that they dig themselves um, from the earth that surrounds them and making many of their pieces in traditional shapes that serve the cuisine 
that is indigenous to that land and that culture. So, you know, there's a certain kind of vessel for beans and a certain kind for tortillas um, and a certain kind um, for for other aspects of their cuisine. And, I mean, Oaxaca is a place in Mexico which has um, a lot of indigenous community and Every, it was just such an amazing experience to, for me to think about the people I was meeting and the roots that they had and the cultural traditions that they had and then the pride that they had in what they were doing and, um, and how it all, it all came from the earth. Mm-hmm. All of it mm. was based in that. And, um, and it was, it's not just the pottery in Oaxaca. It also has to do with like the weavers and the kind of fibers they use and the natural dyes that they have access to, um, in that landscape. And, and the food there is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, some of the best food I've ever had in the whole world. And, you know, that again is based on what can grow there. And it's so different than my experience in the United States where, you know, my ancestors came from Europe. They escaped from Europe pretty much. And, um, and there was this attitude of like moving forward and it wasn't like nobody ever talked about where they came from, but that was like the past and all of the opportunity was in the future. And so my grandparents, my grandmother finished high school. My grandfather didn't. He went to work, I think, after sixth grade. And then my both of my parents went to college. And there was every expectation that my brother and I would go to college and every expectation that, you know, we would get jobs, um, you know, in offices, <laughs> you know, and use our minds um, for, you know, and have the opportunity, the upward mobility that um, I guess you'd call it white collar work would allow. And I just, when I was in Oaxaca, I just started thinking about like what it must feel like to have like roots in the, that earth, like to feel like the strength of those roots. I didn't write a lot about my travels in Oaxaca um, in the book because I didn't feel like I could write about a culture that was, that I didn't know very well, but I could only sort of write about like how that experience affected my um the way I, the way I looked at the world, you know, my attitude. And this goes back to what I was saying about, you know, that program I went on in college where we spent so much time thinking about and talking about like how a culture evolves and how we, how food or the textiles or all different things can be used as storytelling devices about a culture. And so, um, making the connection, making those connections was really important to me. And, when I look at the book, um, the first chapter is called Remembering, and and the people that I profiled in that section are probably, as a whole, sort of the most, what they do is most connected to the earth. Sarah Jareth, who's a potter, and she actually studied pottery um, in college and then ended up going back to the village where she grew up and to this hill where she had her sort of most beloved childhood memories and starting to like use the 
the the clay that was in that earth as well as the stones and other materials as inspiration for her pottery. Jessica Green, who's a weaver who um, lives in North Carolina and grows plants um, that she uses for natural dye and raises sheep and uses some of that wool for spinning her textiles. Jessica also like lives in this area and tries to connect with the people around her and really create a sense of community um, and inter, I don't know if I should say interdependency. Um, I mean, it is that, but it's sort of interconnectedness where everybody is not just taking care of themselves, but they're thinking about um, how what they do affects the rest of the community. The remembering part, there are these very clear connections to the earth. There's Anne-Marie O'Sullivan, who's working with the willow. And yeah, and, and you described the the potter and you described the... Um, the weaver, the 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 sections of the book. Walk us through them generally, and sort of what you were looking for as you chose the people in each of those sections. Not necessarily. I mean, if you want to pull out one or two women from each, uh, but that might take a long time. So g- go through them and and kind of distill for us what made you choose one person over another person in this world of. Um, you know, possibly multiple in a in a similar category, and just describe the sections and why they they were important to you as categories. I love the sections. There, it's called um, remembering, slowing down, joining hands, making a home, and finding a voice. What is really interesting to me when I read those out is. Um, how it all worked out because I didn't really know when I started exactly how the book was going to be organized. I didn't know, like I didn't have a checklist, like these are the people that are going to be in it. These are the places I'm going to go. These are the themes. I just was really trying to trust the process and trying to follow my instincts and, and also being practical in terms of, um, you know, where I could go, how much time I could spend traveling, both in terms of time and and money. And in the beginning, it was really just, you know, anything was possible. So it was, it was sort of investigating different places and people and books and opportunities and seeing what resonated with me. And um, so, you know, remembering, we just talked about the people that are in that chapter and those people really resonated with me. Um, because I think that I, what it was, was their kind of remembering a way of life that has, is sometimes, you know, in our so-called modern society, this idea, this, what you call the convenience society, this idea that, um, that things are better now, that, you know, we don't have to grow our own vegetables or, you know, Anne-Marie doesn't have to grow her own willow. She could go online and Google, you know, willow plants and, and, and have it shipped to her in plastic. Um, you know, she's in England and she could have it shipped from anywhere in the world. Um, but that there is this, there are these lessons that our ancestors 
and our plants and our, you know, and our animals have to teach us and that um, we need to, or that when we're open to learning that, we become more wise. Um, so then the, the second chapter is slowing down. And again, you know, I think I was drawn to, to stories about people um, who were doing things that were taking a different point of view about the value of speed. Um, and obviously there's a lot of like overlap in the chapters, you know, people like Anne-Marie O'Sullivan, who's making baskets, um, clearly is not, her goal is not to work quickly, you know, to <laughs> turn baskets out because there, there's no way to, for her to do that. But um, in the slowing down chapter, um, I wrote about four different people, two of them, Natalie Channon of Alabama Channon and Christine Behar of, of Verb for Keeping Warm. They both have businesses um, that are related to kind of the, the slow fashion movement. Um, and there's a lot of overlap between kind of the what I call the DIY renaissance and the slow fashion movement and this idea that we ought to know where our clothing is coming from. Yeah. If we are buying clothing, if we are making it, we ought to know where our materials are coming from, whether that's the fiber, you know, the raw fiber or the yarn or the thread or the fabric. Um, and when we understand how things are made, we have more empathy for those who make those things for us. Um, and we have more care about it. And when we know where those materials come from, when we understand, you know, the, how something is dyed and the difference between the environmental impact of a chemical dye versus a natural dye, then we have more, um, empathy for like the earth and what we're doing to it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and then, um, there's two other people in that section. One of them is Maura Ambrose, who is a quilter. And in her um, profile, it's really about, you know, she was, had this, she kind of developed this career as a, a quilter and she was doing really well. And then she became a mother and she had to really slow down and she had to kind of navigate her identity as an artist and a successful artist uh, with the fact that she wanted to be with her child and, mm -hmm. and, and sort of, that was a hard, that was a challenging navigation. And I did find throughout the book, there are people have asked me like, what are some themes that keep coming up and motherhood? Um, and in particular, um, postpartum depression, which I don't think, I'm not saying Maura had it, but this idea, a bunch of other people in the book did mention that they either had that or they certainly went through a period um, after their child or first children were born where they felt like at a loss because they, they didn't know what they were, they felt like they were supposed to be sort of feeling certain things as a mother mm. that were kind of negating who they were previously and maybe still wanted to be as an individual. Um, which, and it, I bring it up just because it was something that, that came up quite a bit and I think is a really important issue for women to talk about because I think a lot of women are 
kind of afraid to talk about it. Well, and and I think it's important um, to note it as a theme and to talk about it not just as women but as a culture because uh, it is a it's a relic that that stuck place of either or is a relic that can be overcome not by pretending you can do everything really, really well all the time, but by having the conversation in which then there is support and clarity around the fact that you can't do it all. You want to do some of this and you want to do some of this. And that this culture of convenience and speed has um, put us in that spot. And it's uh, it's a it's a worthwhile one to explore. And the other one that came up was grandmothers and how people um, really credit their grandmothers for so much of you know what they love in their lives, which I thought was a really interesting theme as well. Writer, maker, knitter, and gardener Melanie Falick has a new book, Making a Life: Working by Hand and Discovering the Life You Are Meant to Live. It's a fascinating spotlight on the correlation between what we do with our hands and the quality of the lives we lead. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week. It's now February. I have a thick, happy stack of seed catalogs on my bedside table, my coffee table, my kitchen counter, to say nothing of in my office. I love this planning and plotting time of year, dreaming of the life we'll grow. Cultivating Place is a great addition to your podcast library to remind you why you engage in these life-affirming, gardening, and nature-loving relationships. But if you're a new gardener or an established gardener looking for some good tips, you might want some additional direction and specific steps. I have just the podcast for you. Over at the Grow Yourself podcast, Nicole Burke, author of The Kitchen Garden Revival, encourages you through a lot of great how-to in the kitchen garden and much more. Here's more on adding that to your garden podcast library. Welcome to the Grow Yourself podcast, surprising stories about the food we eat and inspiring conversations about what it really takes to live the whole and happy life we're all craving. I'm Nicole Johnsey Burke, your host and the owner of Rooted Garden and Gardenery Incorporated and author of the book, Kitchen Garden Revival. Is it obvious yet? I'm kind of obsessed with the kitchen garden. I'm convinced that the kitchen garden is the missing piece in our culture's pursuit of a whole and happy lifestyle. I mean, what other thing teaches you something new, grows food you can actually eat, connects you with nature and your local community, looks super beautiful, and does good for the planet? I'm thinking, I'm thinking... I just can't seem to think of anything else. See what I mean? The kitchen garden may just be the answer you've been looking for on your own journey to health and wholeness. And this podcast, it's going to inspire and enable you to make garden magic right in your very own space. If you're someone who wants to eat more good food that's actually good for you, fill your day with great stories you'll want to text to a friend. If you want to hear more about inspiring people and do a little bit each day to make it better than the last one, Grow Yourself is what your ears have been waiting for. You won't just learn about gardening here. You'll learn how to make growing as a person a big part of your everyday life and your life, your community, and your garden 
of course, will be all the better for it. So put in your headphones, turn up the volume, and let's take a walk, go on a drive, or just hang out in the kitchen garden together. I would love it if you subscribe, leave a review, tell all your friends, and come hang out with me each and every Wednesday as we grow ourselves together in the garden. You can listen to Grow Yourself wherever you get your podcast and find out all about the show at www.gardenary.com slash podcast. That's G-A-R-D-E-N-A-R-Y. Thanks so much for joining me. Now let's dig in. If you're just joining us, this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Melanie Falick, describing the concept of joining hands, metaphorically and literally with others through the handmade in our lives. A lovely, lovely thought in this time when the simple act of joining hands has become far more complicated. The next chapter is called Joining Hands, and that's really about the sense of community that we have as people who make by hand and then find one another. I think that's a really important part of this DIY renaissance and goes back to how our culture has evolved and how um, we don't live in community in the way that historically people did before, let's say, the Industrial Revolution. And um, it's lonely. (laughs) But yet when you, and this was what I experienced, you know, when I entered kind of this handwork world as an adult, when I became a knitter, and as I mentioned earlier, I met all of these extraordinary women, and they became my community. And so in the Joining Hand chapter, I wrote about the African American Quilt Guild of Oakland, and I wrote about the Brooklyn Shoe Space. The Brooklyn Shoe Space is a place for people who want to make shoes um, by hand and with using some equipment that they can't have in their own personal space. So that's a place where they can go and share equipment and also learn about shoemaking. And then I wrote about the Chateau Dumas, which is a place in France where you can go for a very uh, luxurious week or two of um, lessons um, on different topics and spend time heavenly time with other makers. I I went there and did shibori dyeing as well as fabric collage. I don't know, go through all of them, but I did the Center for Furniture Craftsmanship, which is probably the most challenging thing for me where I went and learned very, very beginning skills for fine woodworking, which was basically learning how to work with hand tools. And that was... (laughs) challenging. This probably the second most challenging thing was um, another place that I wrote about in Austin, Texas, the Camp Heavy Metal, where I went and learned welding. But what was interesting, like with the woodworking and the welding, there were more men um, than women in those circumstances. But yet, um, you know, what we were doing was all, you know, there were ways of kind of relating those sort of hard (laughs) materials to like the softer ones of textiles and and pottery to a certain extent, because we were like, I remember when I was doing the welding, um, I was talking to this big guy, you know, with big muscles and loud tools and high temperatures. And I was like, oh, welding is kind of like cake decorating or, you know, or, or 
basting stitches together when you sew. And he was like, yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I think that too, because it was just, you know, like big, heavy, hard pieces of metal have to be connected and you connect it with what's called a bead, which is kind of like a basting stitch before you put your seam in. That's great. And then the fourth chapter is making a home. That's about how we use our handwork to both create things that make our houses or apartments feel like homes and also how we um, feel at home in ourselves, within our own bodies, when we are using our hands and are feeling competent and Mm self-sufficient. It's so hard for me to, when you said, just mention one or two people from each chapter and it's like, oh, but everybody is so wonderful. I feel like, but one, I did write about Nikki McClure and JT Scott. I loved that one. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. And Nikki is a paper cutter paper cut artist and JT is a woodworker. And I have to say like they live so true to their values. Um, they begin each day after they see their son off to school, um, with a walk either along the ocean or the sound, Puget sound outside of their house or through the woods where they sort of talk about what their day is going to be. And then they go to their studios and do their work and, then they have another walk at lunch and and talk about how things are going and they're always bird watching and berry picking and um, sailing and just living so in tune with the seasons and with nature. And I remember when I was working on the writing section of the book after I had interviewed most of the people and then I was calling them back to kind of follow up on different themes. And I don't remember exactly what Nikki and I were talking about, but she gave me the advice to always um, make sure that every day I went outside and touched the earth. And um, I was thinking about that before our call, knowing that the theme of your podcast is, is gardening. And, um, and I just thought like, that was, that's, was, it just, I think of what Nikki said all the time. And sometimes if I'm in the house at my desk and I'm feeling rushed or anxious or just busy, busy, you know, the busy buzzing kind of life. Yes. If you do go, sometimes I just, I remember what Nikki told me and I'll just go outside and just squat down and put my hand on the earth. And it is so soothing Yes, And it's just (laughs) in the same way that sometimes when I'm working and and certainly while I was writing the book, this came up, um, you know, there's all these with writing, there's lots of words. So your mind is very, very busy with those words. And sometimes it felt like there was a traffic jam (laughs) in my head and I really of words, you know, and I really needed like as much as you want to just like push through and work harder and, you know, stick with it and get it done. You know, I really had to be like, I can't write right now. And it just, I can't push through. So sometimes I would, um, just go outside and, and work in the garden and, you know, just 20 minutes in the garden could do it where it would clear my head. And similarly, when I was writing my first book, Knitting in America, I was living in a converted barn in North Carolina and um, we heated with wood and I used to go out and split wood. And that as well became like a respite. And in a way you would say like working in the garden or 
you know, certainly splitting wood. I mean, the, that takes a lot of energy, but it is just is such a relief for the part of your brain that is so connected to like rational thought and um, words. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing that I've come to realize in a way that makes sense to me while working on this book is that there's all these ways of expressing ourselves, some of which have to do with words and some of which do not. And I think that um, we've become so reliant on words that we've kind of lost, I don't know if we've lost the sensibility or we've just sort of stopped paying attention to all the other ways that expression happens and how important they are. And I think that, you know, when you go, let's say, and you see art in an art museum, um, you don't, you know, understand it, let's say, you know, cause it's not pictorial. You don't know, like that's a woman with a basket or something, but it makes you feel something. Right. And it's all, we have all of these senses. Um, and I think sometimes like if you look at one of Anne Marie O'Sullivan's baskets, you feel something that you can't perhaps explain in words, but it, you're drawn to it. And I think that that sort of is becoming more attuned to all of the senses and not just like thinking brain has really helped me a lot in terms of feeling more comfortable in my skin. Yeah. And that brings me to the final chapter, which is called Finding a Voice, um, which is how through the work that we do with our hands, we can find our our true selves and our our way of expressing ourselves. And I think yeah. that everybody needs a way to express themselves. And certainly I do a lot of expressing <laughs> through words and I do a lot of expressing through handwork and somebody else, it doesn't mean that everybody has to do handwork. Somebody else might, you know, express themselves through playing the piano, which is handwork too, actually, or dancing or acting. But I think that creative expression is integral to our wellness. And um, I think that we, that in our culture, we're so focused on, you know, so-called success, which is equated very often with money and prestige. Yeah. But I think that a lot of people are really unhappy because they're kind of like, it's, they're not, they're, their creative expression is clogged <laughs> yeah, and they're on this path toward, you know, what they have been told is success and they just keep on, you know, and we keep on sort of thinking it's going to be, we're going to get there if like we have a bigger title or we have more money or we have that new piece of clothing, you know, all of these, the stuff that we're yeah. putting on top of who we are instead of the expression that comes from within us. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and the both nurturing and the creative expression and the empowering voice of what we want and who we want to be in these activities. Um, 
and these engagements that you profile in these people at work and at life this way, I just can't, they cannot be overstated, Melanie. And I really appreciate the beauty and meaning of your book. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Writer, maker, knitter, and gardener, Melanie Felix's newest book, Making a Life, Working by Hand and Discovering the Life You Are Meant to Live, is a fascinating spotlight on what we do with our hands and how that affects the quality of our lives. In 2015, Melanie left her nearly 20 years in the publishing world to try to re-engage with the handmade in her own life. In the course of making many things following this shift, from time in the garden to crafting a simple folded paper box, Melanie realized that in all of her creative making, she was in fact trying to connect to her own survival, and that that connection was in turn connected to her own sense of self, her own capabilities, and her connection to others. Join us again next week for our first June episode, in which we speak to the floral creative Philippa Craddock. June is traditionally a month in which many, many weddings are celebrated across the world with family and flowers and food. With many of these weddings on hold this year due to COVID-19, we catch up with Philippa and reminisce a little about the lovely florals, from epic arches to the most romantic of bouquets. Philippa designed for Prince Harry, now Duke of Sussex, and the lovely Meghan Markle, now Duchess of Sussex. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio, now also heard weekly on KWMR in Point Reyes Station. Over on CultivatingPlace.com this week, make sure to check out the episode notes with some really inspiring images from the lives of the makers in Melanie's book. From paper crafters to basket makers, they will make you want to make too. Together we grow more grounded. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.